What's up, everybody? This is the Pink Smoke Podcast with your host, Christopher Funderburg, and myself, John Krebs. And we are doing a book episode, a different kind of book, not the kind of book that we've talked about in the past, uh, work of humor fiction. We are talking about Funny Farm, a sweeping epic of the sticks, written by Jake Cronley. Uh, Chris, had you read anything by Cronley before this one? No, and I, in fact, when you recommended it, I had no idea who he was. Although it's funny, you say it's like nothing we've ever read before. When I was doing research for this, finding about Cronley, you know who... Um, I, let's see if I can find the, the the quote, who one of his favorite authors is that he cites as a huge influence. I mean, he's got Westlake all over him. It's got to be Westlake, right? I read every word Donald Westlake has ever written. He yeah. also did the single scariest movie done in the history of movies. He sort of loses his train of thought there. The Stepfather. So tying into an episode we just did. Oh, look at uh, that. Yeah, I bring it back to the stepfather, but it's I didn't get that when I was reading it, but as soon as I read it, I was like, oh, of course it's Westlake. Of course Westlake is a big influence. But no, I knew nothing about him. And in fact, the, the I didn't even really, I didn't know he had written, he's most famous for having written three movies or the novels that are based on three movies that all came out in the late 80s, back mm-hmm. to back to back, to back each year, which are Funny Farm, which is directed by George Roy Hill, um, Let It Ride, which is based on his book Good Vibes and is directed by the immortal Joe Pitka, which we've been discussing. Your new favorite. Here. My new favorite. Joe Pitka directed two movies, Let It Ride and Space Jam. Uh, and the same interview uh or was actually so did you know th- there's there's an there's a um Let It Ride uh minute by minute podcast? Did you know this? Can you what? believe? Yes, I swear to God. And so I you listened. Jumped the podcast shark, I think, when we're doing minute to minute. Let but it there's an interview with 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 Jay Cronley that I listened to. I think it's called Jockey Club. Check it out. Of like all of my Cronley stuff is from that or this other brief interview I read with him. But um, but so he described Joe Pitka in this interview as Conan the director, this six foot nine guy whose wife looked like she just jumped out of a cake at the coaches convention. <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh, it's Jesus. uh yeah but so and then the last one is quick change which i think is the most famous of all the movies the bill murray bank robbery movie which uh, which he points out was later ripped off by inside man and in fact uh, there's an npr sure, interview with yeah. spike lee where he he says it's just quick change you know yeah yeah so those three i didn't even know he had written those those three what Mm -hmm. what i did know about why we picked this book before we started talking about it is that you are a funny farm super fan it is i have heard you and brian sour bonding over a love of funny farm in a way that i think is shocking to anybody who's seen funny farm that that's a movie that's that's induced super fandom. Is that why you wanted to do Funny Farm the novel? What did you know about Cronley? Oh, I'll say the last thing I knew about Cronley uh, is I recognized his name. I didn't know who he was. Um, when you look for rare um, like genre and hardcover books and sort of crime books, his shit was really expensive. He would just show up on those lists of like, hardbacks of 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 early editions of like funny farm and stuff would be like twelve hundred dollars of like really expensive collector's paperback stuff or not paperback hardback stuff but i didn't know anything about it really 
same here and uh looking after enjoying funny farm i went back to try to like see oh what should i read by him next and almost everything is really hard to get these days like it's like you said they're all kind of on used book websites and they're all super rare and none of them have been reissued or they're all out of print so it's really frustrating yeah he's he's famously a like good luck getting into this dude guy like he sort of has that and so he there must be some cult around him in some way yeah i i always thought i knew there was a funny farm book i guess i assumed it was a novelization because i couldn't it was weird to think of the movie having come from a source and when i found out that it was the same guy who wrote quick change and uh, the movie that uh, the book that Let It uh, Ride is based on, it just seemed like a weird thing that he had these three years of huge, huge movies coming out based on his books, all of which I think bombed. Yeah, they bombed. And you could like politely say are like sleepers for people like, you know, when they come up, people, there are people who love these movies. But when they come yeah. up, it's always like, here's a movie you probably never thought was good. Well, guess what? It actually is. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. They're yeah. They're I think they're real sort of cult stuff, right? In a in a yeah. more traditional sense of it, that they have their little cults of fandom fandom around them. I think I don't know. I've only ever heard you I think, right, exactly That's you and Brian fans. Sauer talk about Funny Farm. <laughs> yeah, and Brian Sauer is a big uh, Let It Ride fan too. Or Bill Tech is a big Let It Ride fan as well. Let it's, It Ride uh, is very enjoyable. I hadn't seen it before. I, have to, I I had not either. I remember the previews from when it was around. But I didn't see it. I did see Funny Farm in the theater. I saw it the same uh, month that The Great Outdoors came out. So like my early like thought was, huh, I guess these are what Hollywood movies are. It's a comedian, you know, fish out of water story in the wilderness. Eating something that makes them throw some up. Disgusting. <laughs> exactly i put the same like note week of each other yeah i put the same thing in my notes of like weird that this is so similar to great outdoors i remember seeing this in the theater uh i was a movie i was really excited for for some reason as a kid i was like eight or nine years old and i remember seeing it and feeling like there was nothing in the movie that was identifiably a joke to me <laughs> i just remember as a kid feeling like there is nothing funny in this movie not only that there's stuff that not that it's stuff that i know is supposed to be funny and i may or may not find it funny but just nothing that read to me as a joke except when she slaps the mosquito on his forehead and nothing else even felt like a joke to me i be, remember being extremely puzzled by it when i mentioned to my mom that uh that we were reading this book she had like vivid memories of the movie she remembered the movie really really well which which surprised me yeah, and, I'm surprised. Yeah, that Jordy knows the movie really well. We never, we've never discussed it until now. <laughs> but she was able to like quote it and remembered, of course, the the um, lamb fry scene and things like that. So I remembered the the this movie lives in people's hearts secretly. Apparently, yeah the the squirrel the book she had written a book about squirrels named Andy who gets run over. I yeah. remembered that 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 as a kid to me is really upsetting to me for some reason. Like yeah. the humiliation of it felt so humiliating to well, me. We'll, we'll get into that for sure as soon as we get into the plot. But let me just kind of do an over just an overview of the plot real quick to, before we kind do of we want to do we want to talk a little? Oh yeah, sorry. No, we don't go on. Okay. All right. All right. And I and I was so excited to jump into this, too, that I forgot to do the quote at the top of the episode, which we usually do with the book. So I will start with the quote and then I will give a little synopsis here. From Funny Farm. 
Her husband had eaten some lamb testicles. Chickens bled on her. They had spent the night in an outhouse. A man had shot a hole in their home. The night out had been devastating. The house and 25 acres no longer seemed to represent a potentially peaceful way of life or even an investment to her husband. It was more like a brew he, a mad scientist, had cooked up, and he was not about to hear of its dangerous side effects. What alarmed Elizabeth the most was the casual, almost cheerful manner in which her husband had reacted to the awful birthday party. He appeared to be settling into a routine. It was as if he were becoming brainwashed or building up an immunity to the country. Sometimes, when he loaded the slovenly yellow dog into the back of the banged-up truck and went shopping, with a beer can in one hand and a ball cap turned around backward, they looked exactly like a native. Elizabeth was concerned that their night out was as good as it got around here. And so the story of Funny Farm is a married couple, a former sports writer and a former English teacher, come into a windfall and decide to abandon the city for a more ideal rural setting that turns out to be the worst place on the planet. Uh, Red Bud, Vermont, which I can't remember in the book if they specify Vermont, but in the movie, it's Vermont. I just kind of assume that that's supposed to be in the book as well. But No, no, no. They're in Oklahoma in the book. Is it Oklahoma? They are are in the Midwest in the book. And that to me is one of the, the biggest problem with the movie is that it makes no sense as Vermont. It -hmm. makes no sense whatsoever. Uh, Nothing that happens makes any sense in Vermont. Like it's, (laughs) we can get into it later, but the idea that they're incredibly isolated and things that are like, are like 32 miles or 55 miles away, that doesn't happen in Vermont. Vermont is not that big in that way. You don't get a huge massive farmland with nothing on it and nobody around in Vermont the way you do out in Oklahoma. And Jay Conley's from Oklahoma, right? This is where he grew up. He went to the University of Oklahoma. Um, and this is clearly where it's supposed to be set. It being in Vermont, it, all, it makes me think of the joke, uh, you know, the old joke of uh, uh, Americans think 200 years is old and Europeans think 200 miles is far away, right? Like, 200 miles in Vermont, you'd be out of Vermont. You'd be some other fucking place. 200 miles in Oklahoma is nothing. Yeah. It's just absolutely nothing. Yeah. And in fact, Oklahoma is where I saw, would have seen the movie. I was living in Oklahoma in 1987 when this movie came out. So uh, that's, or 1988 when this movie came out. So yeah, that's, I can attest to that for sure. Uh, yeah, that makes a lot more sense. I mean, they don't never specify, I don't think they specify Oklahoma, but it makes a lot more sense in the book that it would be Oklahoma. Um, and Jay Cronley himself, he was a sports writer. Uh, he wrote for the Tulsa, he's a columnist for the Tulsa world. And it's starting in the late seventies is when he starts putting out these uh, humorous fiction novels. His first one is called fall Guy. It's about college football recruitment as a great, uh, blurb on the front through this novels, through this novel past tomorrow's all Americans and a few gutless wonders <laughs> and followed that up with a, uh, uh, screwballs, which is about major league baseball before writing good vibes about the, the horse gambler that would become Let It Ride and then Quick Change and tre- Cheap Shot. Uh, I think he wrote about eight books in total, uh, which people like. But again, I, it's it's really hard to gauge his cult status, just yeah. like it is the movies, you know. And one more thing about Quick Change, the Bill Murray version is very famous. There's also a version from the mid-80s with jean Paul Belmondo, which yeah. I've never actually seen. Have you seen that one? No, I've never seen it. So I was curious about that too. Yeah, I'm you curious. never see like stills of him in clown makeup or anything. So <laughs> I'm not sure that that's what he's doing with it. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
the other thing about Cronley, and if you try and look him up, he was a sports writer. He wrote, uh, a, he did a lot of sports writing. He fam- he wrote a column on horse racing and horse race betting for ESPN. If you try and look up information about him, it's mainly sports writing that comes up. And the only other recorded uh, interview I could find with him, it's not even an interview. I found him doing pigskin picks from November 5th, 1976 on a radio program, right? <laughs> uh, so he picked Purdue to surprise everybody by giving Michigan their closest game of the year maybe is how he phrases it um which is and i went and looked it up he does a few picks but that's like his big pick and um purdue, purdue, in, fa- purdue in fact upset michigan 14 to go. 16 purdue was unranked and michigan was ranked number one and he picked the upset it was a crazy michigan fish finished three overall but at the time they were ranked number one it's crazy that he picked that upset he also has the great line about the oklahoma kansas game which is i don't think anybody will be able to support him no i'm messing that up i don't think anybody can support himself very long with the ticket scalping revenue from this one meaning this is a <laughs> crappy game that is a great line that's great. Um, yeah, but that's that's why I guess it makes sense that he wrote a book about football, a book about uh, baseball, and then, you know, uh, Good Vibes is about horse racing, which he wrote, he covered exclusively, I think, for ESPN. Uh, so, yeah, he knows about sports, and that's why there's a lot of sports. And, he and appears, even in this book, there's a softball game. And a he appears, game. To, yeah, he appears to be a real degenerate gambler, too. He seems to really like and enjoy gambling, and mm-hmm. said that the uh, the movie version of Let It Ride originally opened with a scene where um, a gambler's anonymous got robbed, got held up, is what gets gets stuck up at the beginning, because he sort of holds gamblers anonymous in contempt, so he thought it would be funny to have the opening scene be a gambler's anonymous meeting and getting robbed just showing you can lose your money anyway might as well lose it to gambling <laughs> well if he's picking an unranked purdue then maybe he was good at gambling maybe. <laughs> to upset but, michigan <laughs> he took him against the spread but before we run off like a racehorse on this let's 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 get into our aperitifs real quick our aperitif pairings uh chris what would be a good artwork to experience before digging into jake cronley's funny farm well, normally we do an aperitif and dessert. I have two aperitifs. I'm going to, they're both two things good to go into. I'll just do one at dessert time with this. It's not sort of to take you out. I couldn't, I couldn't decide. So when we went to do this episode, you'll remember I was fully convinced that Michael Ritchie had directed Funny Farm. I don't know if you remember that. I'd I completely do. forgotten that was George Roy Hill's last movie that it was George Roy Hill's last movie. And so I was thinking about this book and especially watching Funny Farm the movie. And Funny Farm the movie has a strange vibe where it's sort of like a National Lampoon movie. Like a he's like a Clark Griswold character. If they were like nice and didn't have like pervertedness and vomit and shit jokes and stuff in it, right? It's sort of like a defanged national. It's just about a guy who wants this family wholesome life to go right and it just will not go right you know um but there's this book is very very different than it and i was trying to think what filmmaker would have been good and i think the reason i thought of richie is because this is the kind of thing richie 
did, like Richie would have been good to have directed Funny Farm. Let It Ride has a real Digstown vibe to it. Um, it, it and sort of Digstown is like Let It Ride and, and Funny Farm mashed into one movie, just about like small town awfulness and terrible people combined with like an improbable gambling winning streak. Um, and so I was thinking about picking Digstown, but what I'm going to pick instead is the Bad News Bears. Right. I think that the bad news bears has like a darkness and a nastiness to it. That's similar to what funny farm has while still being fundamentally a comedy bad news bears in my mind, it forms a trilogy with Saturday night fever and Rocky of films you hear about when you're a kid and you assume they're feel good movies, but they're really deeply unpleasant. You know what I mean? You assume these are like real good, feel good movies, but they're actually like grimy and miserable. And they're all released within about a year and a half of each other. They're all released in a very small uh, time frame. So it's this like 76, 77 trilogy of like movies that are like feel good movies, but are actually like horrible, <laughs> like d- dark, nasty, depressing life stuff. And I think that there's something about that tone that's similar to Funny Farm. Like Bad News Bears is about like, it's very, very funny and it's a sports movie and Funny Farm is a book about a sports writer, but it's also about like alcoholism and drinking too much, which is both played for comedy and not shying away from how shitty it is too. you know, it's a movie that plays things for comedy while not shying away from how shitty it is. And I think that's the tone. If you were going to make a really faithful version of this book, that it would be like bad news bears. I I think that that's, do you agree with that? Do you think that's fair? I do. I think that Richie would have been a great pick to have done this uh, book uh, more so than Fletch lives for sure. (laughs) Um, You could have still had cast Chevy chase since they'd worked together uh, before. No, that's a good pairing. I think it makes a lot of sense. I think that uh, the you get kind of lost in sort of the cutesy humor of the book enough that when something kind of dark happens, you're like, oh, shit. You know, like it really kind of unsettles you for a second there. Oh, really? I find this movie to be incredibly, uh, or this movie, I find this book to just be um, incredibly brutal i never get lost in the humor of it it's so brutal it might as well have been designed by erno goldfinger it's a brutal it's the violence it's a really brutal book like the violence is really unsettling and there's a lot of it and it's harsh and it's It's miserable and it's (laughs) it's head injuries and it's people getting knocked out and it's car crashes and baseball bat it's like it's fucking brutal this it is but it's got this it's got this spectator voice to it at the same time these spectator observations of like well what are you going to do about that you know someone's going to get upset and shoot a gun it, it you know kind of like softs it softens it in a kind of interesting way that's makes it more palatable i guess it would say you know like it doesn't become too harsh or too miserable at any given point and i think ultimately there's like a romanticism somewhere you know buried in in, in, in it somewhere maybe not so much as in the movie which really softens things at the end but I think that, you know, with all the hopelessness, I think there's kind of like a, ah, that's just the way it goes kind of mentality to the to the It's narration. still funny and fun. The brutality never sacrifices the funny and fun. It's got a really unique tone. It's like West looking, Westlake in that way. It really yeah. is like something like The Axe or The Stepfather, which is a really funny movie, despite being brutal, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
So, so yeah. So I think it's a good pick. I think Richie would have <clears throat> would have been a good choice. My aperitif. I'm going to go ahead and uh, before we get into the plot and everything, ruin one of my favorite scenes, which is uh, when Andy Farmer, the hero, is kind of like at his lowest, at the bottom of the barrel. He's basically like you know his wife has left him. Uh, he is his novel is pretty much dead. That he's been trying to write has gotten you know no direction. And he is uh, more or less broke at this point. He's just kind of hanging out on this porch by himself. And a truck pulls up and this guy comes out of the truck with a dog who he's never seen before (laughs) and just takes the dog up to his porch and puts the dog on his porch and the dog pisses on his porch. And Andy just kind of watches this quietly. And the guy explains like, you know, your dog has been coming over and peeing on my trailer porch every day. So this is, you know, this is my revenge, bringing the dog over here specifically. It's a great scene. Um, that scene really reminded me because I was thinking of like, what other humor books does this kind of conjure up for me besides, you know, Westlake and, and other uh, ones that I've read a lot. It reminded me of a scene at the beginning of Douglas Adams' uh, Life, the Universe, and Everything, where Arthur Dent has been stranded on prehistoric Earth with uh, nowhere to go, no spaceship, no way to to escape. And then suddenly a spaceship arrives and he's, you know, jumping with joy and he's excited that maybe he'll be saved uh and this guy comes out his name is uh wow bagger the infinitely prolonged he's an immortal being and he insults him he just insults arthur Dent and then gets back in the ship and leaves because in his immortality he's become so bored that he's decided what he's going to do is he's going to insult everybody in the universe in alphabetical order and alfred arthur Dent just happens to be the next person on his list and it's a great joke uh it's this great weird moment of this guy just showing up and uh and then leaving the narrative that you're never going to you know, hear from again in the, in the rest of the story that it kind of reminded me of. And so there is definitely kind of a, a Douglas Adams kind of, you know, uh, humor, I think, to to Cronley a lot. And I'd say in that moment, the way the character reacts, it's just I know he's played by Chevy Chase in the movie, but it's such a ch- you can just picture Chevy Chase in that scene so perfectly it's such perfect casting george roy hill had wanted robin williams originally apparently but that's just it's impossible for me to imagine anybody but chevy chase playing this character yeah it was even robin williams right who said like this is this is not the right energy for me right like this is this i'm the wrong person to cast and uh so you want someone like chevy chase basically um but yeah um it's funny too that you like you you meet Andy Farmer, you know, kind of yelling at these movers that he's frustrated with, just like going off the handle at everything that's going wrong, just losing his mind. And then you really appreciate that at this point in the story, he can't even react to like this guy coming and bringing his dog specifically <laughs> to piss on his porch in front of him. Something that should you know get 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 his umbrage up more than anything. So it's uh it's a funny scene. So so Douglas Adams it reminded me of a little bit. So I think that would be a good place. Although I can't honestly say life the universe and everything specifically would be the book i would recommend because i don't love that one i would say the one before at the restaurant at the end of the universe would be a good one to read interesting i've only read the first one so in that series that was i feel like i missed i feel like if you're going to get into douglas adams you need to be like under 23 i feel like i missed my chance to get really into douglas adams that it's that it's too late feels like a weird thing exactly no i know exactly what it's like getting it trying to get into kurt vonnegut when you're 40 just like you're too you you missed your chance yeah getting getting back into getting back into him too like i was like i'll reread the hitchhiker uh guy uh guide uh series at some point and it's just like it's too late you know i (laughs) i read it the right time in junior high high school and like that was the right time to read it i think 
can't go back now. I think that us picking such wildly different uh, aperitifs speaks to this book has a strong and original voice. Um, it's it's a it's an interesting book. And why don't we get into it today to get into the format for we decided to do a slightly different format than we normally do for the book episodes. What's what's our plan for today, John? Well, since there, you know, the there are many plots, many, you know, comic uh it's extremely episodic. And, it's yeah, extremely, yeah. extremely episodic. And dozens and dozens yeah. of characters. We kind of thought we would, you know, introduce the main story, but then we kind of like pick three of our favorite characters that show up in this book somewhere and uh, use them as a way to kind of talk about some of the specific episodes in this book that we enjoyed. So the the main characters are Andy and Elizabeth Farmer. They move from the city to uh, this house in the middle of nowhere. And uh, it's it's obvious that they've idolized, you know, the, the they've had the romanticized idea of moving out to the country and that everything is going to go perfect, even though almost immediately things go wrong. There's no telephone in the house. Uh, the movers have uh, been given terrible directions that are completely lost trying to find this place in the middle of nowhere. And uh, when Andy goes out to go uh, fishing, he ends up catching a snake that flies right into his face. <laughs> and right away, Elizabeth has this very kind of resigned sort of acceptance of the things that are going on, even as she's being traumatized by things like finding the corpse of the former owner buried in her new garden. She's... She ha Andy has like a very, you know, romanticized view of everything where Elizabeth is a lot more realistic. And I like how the book kind of goes back and forth between their perspectives. And Andy's perspective is always one of like, oh, he's, you know, he's glamorized everything. He's kind of like a fool. And her has always... he glamorized? I feel like what I like about this book is that it's immediately awful. Everything about this, there's no moment in which you're on board that this might be a good idea. It's immediately awful. And I feel like Andy Farmer, and I, it's funny that he does that. He names this guy Farmer in uh, Good Vibes, the character's name Trotter, who's based of horse racing and going to a farm. He likes yeah. doing that with characters. I'm sort of surprised that Bill Murray's character isn't named Robber in Quick Change. <laughs> but um, Or Robertson. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But... um. But it's it's Andy to me is more like determined to make it work than romanticizing anything. He's deeply cynical, I feel like almost from the get go, and that he's just dug in on I'm going to make this work rather than this could be potentially great. I feel like that's the only difference of opinion is that she stops to say, why are we doing this? And he says, because we have to, because we've we've made the decision and we're just bound to it now. And as somebody that's, I was worried when I, when we started reading it, I lived in farm country as a kid and it's miserable. I personally hate the countryside and being out there. I hate farm country. I hate big expanses of land. They're just an awful place to be. And I was worried the book was because knowing Cronley's from uh, Oklahoma, that the, the book was going to somehow like cast them as city slickers who get in over their head and don't understand the, the pleasures of the world and, and are, you know, too set in their ways or the, something like that. The book is like, no, this place fucking sucks minute one this sucks there's nothing good about it there's nothing to recommend any of these people there's nothing to recommend any of this place it's not the people from the city that are coming and mucking things up with their highfalutin cosmopolitan ways it's that they've come to a place that's terrible and i really like that 
I really, really <laughs> like that about it, that it doesn't for a minute romanticize country living in any way. The people are petty, they're alcoholics, the scenery's ugly, it's boring, there's nothing to do, everything's difficult, the social services don't function right, all of these things that I know to be true from living in farm country. And I've, and I've looked it up, I was looking, because they say the nearest town is 32 miles away in this, and I was like, how far away did, was my house from the nearest town? And my house was only 14 miles from the nearest town, and I'll tell you that felt like fucking forever if you wanted sure. to go buy milk that's an you know that's 45 minutes out of your day if not an hour you know just through the the tribulation of it you know and and it's just that's that's one thing i liked about it is that there's no romanticizing page one is basically like oh they fucked up you know yeah, cronley doesn't romanticize it at all i completely yeah. agree with that but I guess, Andy, if he glamorizes in any way, it's that he has this dream of moving out to the country, writing this novel and, you know, kind of that being that guy. I think he has kind of like set this role for himself. He's going to be the professional writer who gets out of, you know, the place where everyone's a professional writer and go out and like yeah. stick his own claim at this place and like write something absolutely brilliant. And I think kind of the interesting thing, kind of delving into his character and kind of learning more about him is that we don't really know is the environment what's like killing his creativity and his imagination or is he just like a completely hopeless guy in the first place you know when he sits down to write this novel but um it's interesting to compare i don't want to get too too into the movie now because we kind of talk about <laughs> it later but the movie obviously has to do a lot of more external kind of stuff with that and doesn't really present the town necessarily as being awful the way the book does so when it comes to the big uh, final scene where it's you know that they need to they, they beg everybody they basically bribe everyone to be normal so they can try to sell the house and pass off the town like it's a normal town and not an awful fucking place yeah it's kind of comes that comes a little bit out of left field in the in the movie because it seems like there's not really that same element as there is in the book of like just like every single thing being awful well so that's that, also that climax makes a lot more sense in the context of the book also, again, Vermont and New England, small towns, they're like lovely and picturesque up there. Like I had, maybe it's just the difference that I happen to like New England and don't like the Midwest, but like Vermont is nice. Things aren't 32 miles away up yeah. there and the small towns tend to be quaint, like Dust Bowl, Tornado Alley type places tend to be actually ugly and terrible. You know, this, this is just, I don't mean to insult people living in these places or stuff like that. It's just a very different, the bad places are so much harsher and so much harder than the bad places in Vermont, which tend to be like quaint, you know, it's, there's a mm -hmm. harshness to the Midwest that there's just not to New England. And I think, and I agree with you completely, like a picturesque snow covered little town up there, it's just plausible, the, the fakeness of it there's less that needs to be faked in Vermont yeah, than right, needs to right. be faked in uh, in Oklahoma. And the first thing that I thought, because there's the infamous scene where he eats the aforementioned lamb testicles, the lamb fries. The lamb thought, fries. You're not getting lamb fries in Vermont. Get the fuck out of here. I've never heard of anything like that. In New England, you're not getting lamb fries. And I immediately looked up lamb fries, Oklahoma. And sure enough, there's a famous place in Oklahoma City that does lamb fries. Like, you know, it was known for it. Yeah, obviously, Cronley must have known about. Yes, and, and he's uh, yeah. he's from Oklahoma City. His his family, his dad was a newspaper man, and his mom was 
an English teacher, I believe. I might be screwing that up. Um, but he's from Oklahoma City, so it makes sense. No, there's not the diner waitress is not shearing the testicles herself in in a small town in Vermont, the way that that's semi-plausible in small town Oklahoma. Yeah, yeah. So let's get into just as a way of kind of breaching the various vignettes here. Let's talk about our favorite characters. You want to go first? Yeah, I'll pick. We're each going to pick three characters to talk mm-hmm. about. And I'm picking Lester Shimmerhorn. No, I'm just kidding. John. You son of a bitch. <laughs> John, when he proposed picking characters, he said, I pick, I call Lester Shimmerhorn. Um, <laughs> I'm picking Marion Corey Jr., an attorney who is injured during a baseball game. So this character to me is symbolic of the novel representative of the novel in a very basic way they after they after the farmers andy and elizabeth have been have been living in town are have been living out in the house for a while they are they're kind of going crazy out there they decide to go into town and just enjoy a day in the town she goes to an antique shop and he goes to watch a local softball game And this attorney, what happens is there's some snafu where the attorney stands up right as the ball is being pitched and he's cracked in the back of the head and completely knocked out, Uh, not in like a cutesy way, like brutally hit in the back of the head, rendered unconscious, sent into a coma, right? He basically says that the whole chapter is like this huge six foot, 200 pound guy who was really good at batting is the one who's, who ends up hitting him on the back of the head. Yeah, because it's sort of a, a casual game and he stands up at the wrong time uh, and just gets cracked in the back of the head. And what happens is there's a moment of confusion. Then everybody starts encouraging the batter to run around the bases because it's because the, the ball has gone off and the catcher hasn't caught it because the, the attorney is the catcher who stands up. I should make clear he's the catcher who stands up. That's why he gets hit by the pitch. And he runs around, hits the bases and to score and in the park home run. And there's a scuffle at home plate and the lawyer's body is being knocked around as this is happening before he's eventually taken to the hospital in the back of a pickup truck. Right. Um It reminded me a lot of when I was younger, I used to love watching backyard wrestling videos. Did you ever watch any of those with me? Like the backyard wrestling? No, I used to love these backyard wrestling videos. And this is basically kids doing things in their backyard that could get them killed, like jumping, like doing power bombs off of their roof through card tables and stuff like 15 and 16 year olds. And there's one of them, one tape that begins with, there's this kid walking down the street and he's got his, his mask on. And, uh, and there's a bunch of kids in the neighborhood, like lining the street, cheering him on. He's like maybe 14 or 15 and a car comes accelerates and comes down the street at him. And he's clearly supposed to jump up on the hood and go over the top of the car, but he fucks up and falls and hits his shoulder into the windshield, breaks the windshield, goes tumbling over the roof of the car, right? The guy gets out of the car. It's like a family station wagon and looks at him and there's like silence. All the kids are silent. And then one kid yells, pin him. And the other kid jumps on him and pins him, even though he clearly needs to go to the hospital. This scene reminded me of that so much. That scene from the background, just the like, do the run the bases, but just like this one kid, it's like the breath is out of the room and another kid yelling, pin him, right? Just fucking crazy. But that's what small towns 
are actually like. They are not like anything else. But then uh, Marion Corey Jr. appears later in the, he's not dead. He uh, comes back later. Um, when and they, make, and they decide too on the ruling on the field is that if he dies, they'll have to pick the game up again from where he was hit. <laughs> and if he survives, then they'll say, okay, they won one to zero. Yeah. Um, he joins, rejoins the plot later in the game because he's the town's basically their their main attorney. So when uh, Elizabeth leaves and and wants to divorce, she goes back to New Jersey to her mother's house. She wants to get divorced from Andy. When she has to come back to the town for their divorce proceedings, she bigs, brings a fancy big city lawyer with her. And Marion Corey is uh, Andy's lawyer. Andy being a shell of himself at this point, an alcoholic wreck of a mess with writer's block, who's lost so much weight that he's had to pin his pants on from his nice suit for this meeting with the uh with the divorce attorneys and marion Corey uh does things like confuse like would you like to sit in the chair with would you like to sit with the cheeseburger he has severe brain damage from this but he's winning all of his cases because the judge feels sorry for him and doesn't want to rule against a brain damaged man in court so andy farmer likes his chances because the judge is taking pity on uh on him and the uh and elizabeth's lawyer comes out after their meeting and is like this is the most bizarre experience i've ever had this doesn't work at all like i've never experienced anything like this and um and elizabeth feels so much pity for uh, her husband that she decides to get back with them. They stop the divorce proceedings. She gets a bill for $3,500 and uh, Andy gets a bill for $75. <laughs> Corey says, somebody owes me $75 for that. <laughs> but that's one thing I really like about this book too, uh, is that it has a really good sense of money and losing money. Money is yeah. on its forefront. It has that sort of gambler's sense of your purse and your purse getting bled away by bad decisions and losses. It really does have a very tangible feeling. That's another thing that isn't carried over to the movie, but just like when they have to get a wall replaced for 2000 bucks or have to get the, the body moved out of their garden, how much it costs, or they're going to pay the you know the newspaper boy a little bit of money for something or buy the irish setter you know just the sense of their money draining away it's very very powerful snake poison yeah exactly <laughs> exactly yeah um, there's a real like grifter kind of mentality to the town where they're just getting fleeced left and right where you know he's obviously this guy doesn't know what how much a pound of snake poison cost and right before he walks in to buy the the setter you know the guy's decided this the setter's not selling, so I'm going to raise the price because yeah. people will think it's this great rare dog. And sure enough, he comes along and is more enticed by the expensive dog than the reasonably priced one. Yeah, and that stuff, that joke is so good. They bring the dog home, and the dog just runs away immediately, <laughs> which reminds me so much of just like again when I was a kid and we lived out in the country. The other day, I was thinking about like our dogs just ran free on their own in the neighborhood. It's like my dog came back every day. That's crazy that that's the way it worked. That we would just let Jaja out and bye. We'll see you at food time, <laughs> and that it knew that it lived with us and not the other neighborhood dogs that it would hang out with in a pack. Yeah, that's 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 definitely something that I don't share with you. When I was I had indoor dogs, you know, we would never let them out of our sight. They were always just in the backyard, no matter where we lived. 
So that scene when I saw the movie really upset me that that dog just took off. <laughs> now, now I now I'm able to appreciate it and think it's a hilarious joke both in the book and the movie. Well, this I think that's something. This is why I picked Mary and Corey to start off. This shit is really upsetting. Like getting hit in the back of the head with an aluminum baseball bat and just like being brain damaged. These are like really dark, dark, super duper dark jokes. And I think that's actually one of the few moments in the movie that goes that dark is when he gets hit with the baseball bat that where it actually goes almost as dark as the book goes. And I just find this this book top to bottom filled with like, as dark of humor as it gets. I really do. While remaining fundamentally funny and humorous. That's funny because uh, he's wearing the catcher's mask in the movie. Yeah. So when I was younger, when I saw the movie, I didn't connect that he's the lawyer later on with the neck brace. I didn't realize it was supposed to be the same guy. No, 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 it's not. The neck brace guy is the umpire. That's a weird joke. The neck brace guy is there uh calling calling the game and then he shows up later on too uh i was actually not sure it's supposed to be the same guy that's a that's they call him marion that makes it even more confusing (laughs) yeah it is it's confusing if you know the book if you see the movie yeah yeah. if you see the movie it's just it's nothing but um he has that great line though that where he's looking up because of the neck brace and he's just like, you need to paint the ceiling. <laughs> yes. Which is one of the few original jokes in the movie. The script yeah. for the movie was written by Jeffrey Bohm, who's a writer that we're both interested in, I think. Yeah, right. Is that Bohm. fair yeah, to, to describe him? Cause if he wrote inner space and last crusade, uh, the finest of all the Indiana Jones's movie, surely was, there's nothing controversial about me saying <laughs> that. Yeah. He wrote the dead zone for Cronenberg and it's, funny to think that he had to be chased to do inner space and he kept rejecting it saying like that's that's a stupid idea i don't want to write that but funny farm he was immediately like oh i love the book yeah let's do this and it's very it's it's weirdly faithful to the book most everything that's in the movie is in the book but it turns out with a completely different tone and sense of humor i think it's 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 crazy that it's so faithful and yet so completely different of a thing than the book is you know like you can you couldn't get like more like faithful to the main plot. There's uh my other favorite scene from the book uh is a scene where Elizabeth goes into uh town because a woman has opened a new antique shop, right? And she goes to the antique shop and she's like, How much is this? And the woman's like, Oh, that was my sister, she's dead. And yeah, she's like, Oh, okay, well, what about this? Oh, yeah, that was my husband's, he's dead. And like the joke in the book, which is phenomenal, is that this is not really so sad and and hilarious at the same time as this is not really an antique store. This is like a museum of this woman's life. Where yeah. All the things around her are just mementos of the dead people in her life and nothing's actually for sale. Yeah. And it's just it's this very great melancholy joke in the movie. He transplants that same joke, but he it tweaks it a little bit where it's not really the same joke. Because the joke becomes, uh, oh, who would want this guy's dead guy stuff? Who would want these dead people's stuff? Well, even more, it's like there's this extreme story. Like my husband died of a heart attack in this, you know, in this rocking chair. Oh, I don't want to sit in this rocking chair. It becomes more like the idea, like you have to visualize someone's horrible death. So you want to buy them as opposed to just like, these things are my treasures that I'm just keeping here to remind me of dead people. It's interesting that it's like two different like angles of the same joke but they both still kind of work in, in a weird way. Yeah, I was very tempted talking about Bohm to pick for my aperitif 
uh, Adventures of Briscoe County Jr., yeah. the great the great Bruce Campbell steampunk western created by Jeffrey Bohm. Although it has nothing to do with this book or the, <laughs> anything, it's just like I can't pick that. But but Bohm's and and a very interesting guy, and he also wrote the Phantom movie, which and Straight Time. He just has a very strange career. But but I agree with you. It's a lot of the scenes he takes sort of verbatim and they come out completely differently the scene where they're going on doing the where um andy farmer has been uh sort of drafted to go he's been enlisted to go on the fishing uh competition uh he's been going to do the fishing competition with the three locals and one of them gets a lure stuck in his neck again in the book that's really brutal and it's him trying him trying to <laughs> knock him out and like describing the like black eyes he's getting and the the bloody nose and how he can't knock him out and how the lure there's so much blood that scene is in the movie but it becomes wacky you know there's just no other way to de- to describe it in any way but like some goofball shit and i yeah. and it's like it's <laughs> It's good. It's a memorable scene. But in the book, it's just so, again, the word for a lot of this stuff is brutal and it's hilarious, but it's it's very hard to think of analogs for this stuff in, in pop culture because it does go so dark in, in cinematic pop culture, especially. It's hard to make comedies that funny that are also that incredibly violent without... I should I should mention too what I'm talking about while remaining mainstream. You can cite something like uh, "Man Bites Dog," which is every bit as dark and attempting to be funny as this. That's not a mainstream thing. That's a very niche thing. This book is still somehow for like general audiences. This book is somehow for mainstream regular. It's a book you can picture your dad reading, you know, and enjoying the heck out of. Yeah, absolutely. John, what is your your first pick for your first character that you want to talk you know about? Know who it is, Chris? It's Lester Shimmerhorn, my man. Maybe he Order. can get some kind of job as a cowboy for like nine hundred bucks a week. <laughs> He's the owner of Shimmerhorn Island Lobster Company, which he has proposed to the town of Redbud. Uh, he believes that you can raise a lobster to maturity for a dollar twenty nine, and uh, you know is trying to get everyone to invest in it. Andy invests in it. A lot of people do. And then it it's no, no, Andy doesn't invest in it. What does Andy do? He buys he his, wife a bir- his wife as a birthday gift, a thousand dollars investment. Yeah. Right after she is like, talked to him about how they're hemorrhaging money and how the finances <laughs> are getting bad. And he answered this thousand dollar ownership into Lester, to Lester's company for it's a, a birthday a present. little moment. It's wonderful. Uh, and then the, the plant itself, uh, melts in the heat that's another thing that's funny <laughs> to think about this is in vermont because it doesn't get so hot in vermont that a roof literally collapses from the heat yeah 109 degrees in the summertime yeah where someone quits painting a house in the middle of the job because it's just too fucking hot <laughs> to keep working <laughs> it's not something you attribute to new england anywhere in new england but certainly in oklahoma that could happen um anyway so Lester tell everyone's after Lester. Everyone basically uh cleans him out. You know, they, they seize his house and his possessions, even though he tells them, Don't fuck with me, I'm from Chicago. <laughs> this, this is just like a classic. You could find this character in like a Westlake book. This is like this is the perfect character for like Greg Henry to play in a movie. You oh know, my god. This. 
this like kind of pathetic shyster type of character. But he ends you up know becoming... who I was um picturing. Go ahead, yeah. You know who I was picturing was um John Polito as this character. Don't fuck with me. I'm from Chicago. That kind of guy <laughs> when he gets stealing the chickens later on, like I got I got some bags of chickens for you. Just perfect John Polito character. That would be good. That would be good. It, uh, it's fact the first thought. My first thought was Joe Pesci. And I was like, no, it's not Joe Pesci. It's someone a little bit like to the side of Joe Pesci. John Polito is the perfect <laughs> to the side of Joe Pesci character actor to choose. Uh, but Lester ends up becoming drinking buddies with Andy. They come up with this hilarious heist, which um, is not in the movie at all. It's uh, only in the book. But oh my God, it's the best part. Heist, where basically they've like bought the same kind of paper that the bingo cards are on. They're going to they're going to steal the pot from the blackout bingo, which is right which when you need to get all the boxes. And uh, it's $10,000 and then it lowers, you know, as the game goes along and nobody wins and nobody ever wins it. So they decide they buy they buy the right kind of material. They they make a duplicate of the card, which Lester from the bathroom, listening to a mic that's on Andy, puts the numbers on, and then brings it out, and they swap, and Andy takes it over to present to the guy, and it's this hilarious like they're both clearly like completely nervous and jittery amateur criminals doing this ridiculous heist together, and the reason it gets foiled is because the guy who checks the cards. Had his own side deal where he was going to like, <laughs> he was going to cheat this thing. And yes. so he immediately knows the card is has to. There's be. actually a guy in the audience when, uh, when Andy yells bingo, a guy in the audience steps up and yells bullshit, right? This guy in the audience, not the, not the bingo caller, right? Because he's in on it with the bingo caller. Cause yeah. the bingo caller has injected the ping pong balls with a little bit of water so that they go to the bot very bottom of the thing. So he knows which ones to pull out. That's the scam. He's going to be running with this other guy and they immediately get chased out of town. <laughs> and um, I just watched the impractical jokers episode where Sal's punishment is he has to keep shouting out. Oh bingo. my God. And it's one of the most horrible things ever. And you can, you're so scared of all these people playing bingo. They just have these like, this zombified look in their eyes. And even in the book, Cronley describes them having like, you know, eight or like 10 cards in front of them and play, playing them. And he tries to talk to someone. They're like, be quiet. You know, like they're just yeah. doing the cards. And you just know immediately like bingo people have got the scariest fucking people on the planet. So when this guy shouts out, cheat, cheater at him and all the bingo people rise to get him. You're just like, <laughs> this is terrifying. This is certainly a situation you would never want to find yourself in. Lister and Andy's position that they that they are now in and and my favorite Lester moment comes where they are um later on when they're uh have prospective buyers and they're trying to you know everyone is playing a role to pretend that this is a fantastic town to live in <laughs> he shows up in a cowboy hat pretending to be a foreman overlooking the uh, nitrogen nitrogen content and prudent fertilization of the soil <laughs> And, and I like that he uh, produced in town. They say, what produce? He says, just sold some pigs in town. <laughs> <laughs> um, this book, it gets fucking thrown around a lot, but this book is laugh out loud funny. It's yeah. absolutely laugh out. And the, the heist scene is funny. This is, there's like a, a meta textual element to this where, um, it's a little bit, it feels a little bit autobiographical for Cronley because, 
the author in the book, Andy Farmer, he's writing a heist novel, which sounds very inspired by by uh, Lionel White's clean break and that it begins with flashbacks and jumping around in time and has flashbacks within flashbacks within Side it. Side flashes. <laughs> but he's doing a terrible job writing this heist novel that's not coming together. When he does write it, it, it comes out awful. And... Um, Cronley and and so instead of actually doing the novel he comes up with this heist plan for robbing the bingo stuff and Cronley has talked about how when you're writing when he was writing a heist novel he tried to come up with how to actually rob a bank that quick change got written out of he spent a year eight to five every day planning a bank robbery. And that's where quick change comes from is he was thinking about if you were to actually rob a bank, how could you do it and be sure to get away with it? And so there's definitely something of that to this book as well. The writer thinking about a robbery, not being able to write a book, ending up doing a robbery. And then it's, uh, and it's a terrible idea. Who needs another heist novel, right? The book sort of makes fun of the idea of writing a heist novel. And then the book itself becomes a heist novel novel you know there's all of that sort of textual metatextual elements to it that are clever without being leaned on in any way they're very organic and um and not too self-serious with it they're natural storytelling gestures instead of like clever gestures for the writer to show off in any way they they just they work for the story and they're very funny in the story yeah i mean i think that's a huge uh that's a huge reason that quick change the movie because I haven't read the book. It works so well is that that's a really well thought out bank robbery that they commit. You know, it's like even before there are any jokes, it's like, that's pretty smart, you know, pretending to be the hostages and coming out one at a time and working together. Like that's a pretty well thought out high situation there. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's a, you know, obviously Lester Shimmerhorn is one of the, is he the third lead? He's probably the biggest of the secondary characters, right? Uh, yes, I would say, yeah, he, the way he shows up uh, when he does. He's uh, he's also in the great tradition of like the richest to rags characters that I love in movies like uh, like Bobcat Goldthwait and Scrooge or Matt Malloy and Surviving Desire, where they're not necessarily like rich guys, but like they go from being like a normal person with a job and like a yes, deranged, like, garbage eating lunatic, someone who's just like there, just like yeah. popping up in weird places and slowly losing their mind. Well, Lester Shimmerhorn's plan for revenge is stealing chickens, and he has these <laughs> yes. just bags of bloody chickens that he's like uh, defeathered himself that he's trying to sell out of the county to other people. And he's getting like 50 cents a chicken for them. And he, you know, and he wants to know if Andy wants any chickens and Andy in fact gets drunk and buys a whole bag of chickens to take home. That's sort of one of the, the breaking points for Elizabeth <laughs> with it. Um, Fantastic character. And I, you know, I touched on it just a little before the reason we're going and picking characters rather than going plot by plot uh, or going sort of scene by scene through the plot is that this is incredibly episodic book and it detours to side characters constantly. It doesn't have what you'd call a traditional plot that builds in a recognizable way. It is nothing but digressions and side characters and little vignettes and asides and personal histories and that kind of stuff. It's, it's a shaggy dog story um, in a lot of ways. Uh, 
but it's all so engaging that you never feel like, where is this going? Each individual episode is so fun and rich. I don't think there's a single one that falls flat. Is there, is there a single episode in this that you're like, I didn't like that bit. That wasn't really that good. Um, I think that no, 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 I don't think so. I, I think that it really works, but I think the best way to get a hold of it is to talk about some of those individual characters. Yeah, definitely. Who's uh, who's your next pick for characters? I, I memorable and and entertaining. I picked two smaller ones when we started to put this together. I feel like it's a little outrageous if neither of us picks um, Petrie, the uh, yes. the uh, crumb Petrie. But I didn't pick him. One of us needs to talk about about he, Crumb Petrie. He's my next pick then. So okay, <laughs> I I picked Glinda, the twenty two year old barrel racer, <laughs> who Andy meets at the bar. And once Andy's life is falling apart, and he becomes a real alcoholic who's drunk most of the time, and Elizabeth leads leaves him. He goes out to try and have sex. He meets this woman at the bar who has the strongest bottom in the county, <laughs> and he takes her to his car, and he's hitting on her. And when she asks what he does, he explains that he's a writer, but that he has writer's block. And when he goes to grab her breast, she kicks the shit out of him. She uppercuts him, <laughs> kicks him out of the car, steps on his neck, kicks his ass, and then steals the truck while at the same time telling him, you're just like my no good ex who would just sit around the house all day thinking he didn't do anything either. And it's sort of like the most final insult you can have to a failed writer of like you are no different than a white trash deadbeat glinda's ex-husband you know 22 year old ex-husband of the barrel racer which is somebody who races at the rodeo their horse around the barrels as part of the show and just like just you how are you different from the white trash losers here that are destroying you you are the same you are indistinguishable from them but again just like the violence of it and the sort of bawdiness of it it's all really unexpected and it's again the the whole thing is just turned up one notch higher than you expect it to be the whole book is just one notch more intense than you're expecting but just such great writing too i love this uh sentence she backed up this advice with a good old-fashioned ass kicking <laughs> <laughs> um and it's very brief she's just one chapter right she's barely in the book yeah. And that's one of the things I, I love about it is you have this incredibly like some books struggle to have a single character as interesting as Glenda in the entire book. A lot of authors would say, oh, I just created this character of Glenda. This is really, really interesting. She's got to be a big part of everything. This book has 30 Glendas to spare, you know, it just, it yeah. just, he's so good at etching these characters quickly. There's a Charles Portis esque quality to this book maybe that's the best comparison what do you think about Ooh, portis yeah i mean i think certainly norwood think for a minute certainly norwood more, and norwood and a little bit of dog of the south too mm, okay yeah not yeah. true grit but i think dog of the south and norwood it has that certainly he gets violent enough for mm. to to keep up with cronley yeah um, i don't think that that's uh i don't think it's a bad comparison i think that they're both Definitely. so original. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, original voices. Exactly what I was going to say. Um. So, who is your next pick? So, yeah, I'm going with uh, Crumb, <laughs> Crumb <laughs> Petri, who is definitely the the thing I remembered most about the movie from all those years ago, played by the great 
uh, Kevin Conway, uh, who people know probably from Slaughterhouse Five, George Roy Hill's you know uh, adaptation of Vonnegut, or uh, Portnoy's Complaint, or The Fun House, the Toby Hooper movie where he plays three different characters. Uh, I or... love how the movie presents him like it's going to be like a cameo. You're all got, like it's going to be Dan Aykroyd, like the way it goes up his body, and then you're like, oh. Okay, well, that's cool for me. I don't think most audiences are going to know who the fuck this is. It plays (laughs) it like it's going to be because you don't see his face the whole movie. And then he has one scene and it like pans up his body and you feel like it's going to be Robin Williams. It's going to be Dan Aykroyd right here. In fact, I got mad rewatching the movie for this because you see him at the town meeting. There's a quick shot of him. And I'm like, no, don't show him at the town meeting. We (laughs) We obviously don't know who he is at that point. We haven't seen him. But uh, I, no, that was wrong, George Roy Hill to make that. <laughs> but anyway, uh, Petri is a, um, <laughs> he's the drunk mailman, basically. He comes by in his pickup truck. He's already well hammered and annoyed that he has to go out of his way to deliver uh, mail to the this uh, home that the farmers live at, which is way out of the way from his 20 room. miles out of the way. So he just tears by like a maniac. And throws their mail, you know, out at them. In the movie, it's presented like he throws it by the mailbox. But in the book, it really seems like he throws it out wherever the fuck he wants. <laughs> because there's this other character, Toby, this kid, who, like, makes a living, basically, at following him around and finding the mail and delivering to people for money. <laughs> it's like their lost mail will come to you if Toby finds it and sells it back to you. But, yeah, Petri is completely unseen character you know he's this terror and again in the movie it's so memorable because he has this like wicked laugh that he does as he's like shooting by the house but in the uh, book it really feels like oh my god this is a man who could literally kill somebody like run them down and not even realize it until much much later or care at all that he did it uh and andy kind of like sets off like a personal war against him literally tries to murder him <laughs> by uh <laughs> By uh, doing things, you know, as he's, as he's rushing by and like like stopping him and, and uh, potentially killing him as he's going past. And it's not until the very end of the story where everyone is pretending to be normal that he does this unheard of thing, which is to stop at the house, come in and introduce himself and hand deliver the mail to the farmers. <laughs> it's just amazing as that great line, which is something like um, tells them he's been ice fishing. And he, and, and he says, ice fishing? He's like, ah, I thought it was a nice touch. In the book, he says, the trout are really, you know, jumping, are really swimming at the bend in the river. Right, right. Uh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah that's, that's what it is in the book. Yeah, so uh, just just a great, you know, char- uh, it, it's great to have these characters in books where it's like you never really see them, but they have such immediate personality, you know, and, and really kind of symbolize the environment more than anything. <laughs> Yeah, and he's a truly nasty seeming character in the book. In the movie, uh, when Chevy Chase like gets dressed up like he's, you know, freaking Rumsfeld in the burbs to to put the rock down the hill at him, <laughs> it feels like cartoony. It feels like Wiley Coyote Roadrunner. It's the broadest that the movie goes, you know. Yeah. But in the book, he set it up in the tree and it feels like he's really going to kill this guy. It feels like he's going to drop this rock on the hood of the car on this guy who's already drunk and screw him up. But the drunk is like 
Petrie knows what's going on and like swerves and gives him that you're gonna have to do better than that first off he's like idling his car far away like he sensed the setup and the trap and I think in the book why it plays again so much more brutal and dangerous rather than cartoony is the car accidents in this book are phenomenally violent there's like three or four car accidents it's in the book by car accidents this book <laughs> well there's the one where the movers get their yeah. brass bed hit there's the one where they get thrown where he gets thrown in the ditch and the ambulance drivers won't pick him up there's the one the lawnmower yeah yes uh, there's the one of them together in the car. Is it after her birthday or is that just in the movie when That's that happens? The, yeah. In the book, it's the one month anniversary of their moving to the house. That they're oh celebrating. yeah. And then I, I keep saying birthday, but it's one month anniversary, isn't it? Exactly, um, yeah. yeah. And then the last one is the prospective couple rather than in the movie, they decide, Oh, we like this town so much. They've touched our hearts. We're going to stay in the movie. In the, in what happens in the book is this couple gets in a brutal accident where a drunken volunteer firefighter runs his fire truck directly into the car. And the guy's like paralyzed and the woman's like shrieking covered in blood, right? Like it's just, it's an absolutely hard. And of course they don't want the house. Now they've been like, nearly killed it's completely completely brutal oh this is nightmarish scenario but again it has this great kind of like tone of writing the uh this great sentence a fraction of a second before the impact johnny johnson had turned the siren on better late than never which didn't do much for morale inside the jeep <laughs> <laughs> you can just imagine this being dragged by this fire engine and then suddenly this siren starts blaring right next to you has got to be so fucking horrific yeah, and I was almost going to pick uh, Johnny Johnson, volunteer fireman, for that. And that's that's a great character where right as you're getting to the end, again, it goes away to talk talk about him. But um, yeah, but when when um, Andy Farmer's trying to kill Petrie, because the violence is so violent, it doesn't feel like jokey or silly. It feels like fucked. It feels like he's lost his mind and is trying to and is just gone native. You know, he's yeah. he's Dennis Hopper in Apocalypse Now. You know, he's just he's just part of this insane culture in some fundamental way. He becomes a worrisome character. In the movie, it never really reaches that point. It never really reaches the point where you feel like he's lost his mind. In the book, he feel he's like a troubling, troubled human being. You know, no, you you said it, you know, you hit the nail on the head when you said he's basically a Clark Griswold character. Sub, you know, substituted in here because even his breakdown seems like the cutesy Clark Griswold breakdowns from like Christmas Vacation where he gets his bonus and freaks out at everybody, you know, where it's like there's nothing really dangerous about it. It's just he's just, you know, it's comedic that he's like lost his mind at this moment. <laughs> um, For my final character, I was going to pick Luckenbill, the mortician town treasurer who's accidentally <laughs> sewn up some of the town's money inside of a body and buried it accidentally because he wasn't paying attention and uh, who angrily when somebody asks how much interest they're losing by not having the money in the bank while it's buried in a person he says a dollar 62 and he angrily throws the dollar 62 down on the town podium <laughs> well he goes but i'm not going to do luck and bill that's a nice uh, riff though on the uh, uncle losing the money from it's a wonderful life <laughs> losing the bank's money actually sewing it into corpse is a great absurdity I think we have to talk about Crocker and Mickey 
I think we can't yeah. talk about the book without talking about them. They're they're a duo. They're the movers who get lost trying to move the furniture to the house in the beginning. They fair, play a fairly big role in the movie as well. But in the book, it's alternating stories. They're co-leads for the first quarter of this book, where it keeps cutting between chapters, between and the farmers at their house waiting for the furniture to show up and things being terrible, and this moving truck getting lost ending up on this tiny rickety bridge that their truck gets stuck on uh taking a beginning to unload the bed because they don't want to sleep in a ditch because they're attacked by an unseen thing in the ditch and so they take out this beautiful twelve hundred dollar brass bed again the great listing the prices of these things and set it up in the road because they don't know what else to do because it's getting freezing and they've gotten lost they can't find the house because local high school kids take down all of the signs all of the time and they've been given a horrible hand-drawn map by andy farmer that doesn't lead them to the house and so they sleep in this bed in the road and then get run into again another brutal car accident where they get knocked out of the bed one sent flying other one sent over the car the bed is completely shattered i love the detail later on when they're driving with the prospective house buying couple and it's all their their covers almost blown when they see part of the bed sticking up out of the mud on the road they're driving down but um what's great too that uses the sequence which is already like pretty amazing dynamite by itself to like introduce all these other minor characters like the uh deputy and then the truck driver who is going to racing to his sister's house to come to her aid and then the uh the convict that has been taken out of prison specifically to move the van off the bridge (laughs) they've let him come out so he can uh move their truck off this bridge that's gotten stuck on yeah and it's great and when they show up um and andy's a dickhead to them their reaction of destroying some of the furniture makes much more sense than it does in the movie i love mike star he's obviously you know he just needs time to change john that's all he needs that's all he needs (laughs) um what does it take to change the essence of a man um but uh but it's it feels like you're overreacting a little, you know. It also feels like, and if you're not in the middle of nowhere, like you guys can find a motel. Everybody fucking calm down here is how the movie <laughs> feels in a lot of ways. This feels like you're just trapped in big empty space, you know. It basically becomes like wages of fear for that sequence <laughs> where they're in the truck. Where it just seems like they don't they've like they're they're somewhere completely they're nowhere they don't have any like sense of geography or anything and they're two fundamental new yorkers they're just such new yorkers who have who have undertaken this trip and and they it's and they're completely driven insane they're broken by the process immediately you know and you realize andy's broken by the process too but he has to stay those guys get to leave you know (laughs) yeah absolutely those guys are, are great characters it's nice too when like things look like they're going to like turn to violence between them and Andy that the finding of the body uh, Elizabeth being upset like kind of brings everyone back down to like the same level where everyone is kind of like yeah this is a pretty fucking weird situation we're all in maybe no one's actually to blame for any of this except just this weird fucking place that we've all found ourselves in. Yeah. And I can't remember in the movie, they, they're not there when the body's found, right? It's the Criterion brothers are there for some reason, yeah, that right? Yeah, happens afterwards. Mm-hmm. It's funny, every time they said Criterion Brothers or I read Criterion Brothers, I couldn't help but think, yeah, I've known some Criterion bros in my life. I've run into a <laughs> fucking cri- few Criterion bros on Twitter in my day. 
Uh, it's it's funny because in the movie they go so far as to collapse the bridge that they're going over in the truck, uh, but they don't have the bed scene getting run run over, which is too bad because it's almost like Le Grand Amour, you know, the Pierre attacks movie. Yeah, like the, the bed being out on the road has that level of like surrealism to it. It would have been a fun scene to film, I think. It's such done. a great image. The bed, just a giant, expensive, beautiful brass bed. You know, like a th- in uh, adjusted for inflation, that's like a three thousand dollar brass bed. You know, like in the middle of the road in just a flat, windslept plains out in the sticks with a huge truck and a rickety bridge. It's such a great image. It's such a great image. It's terrific. My uh, my third pick, I'm going to go with uh, Stanley and Mort Ludlum, who are another set of brothers who show up late in the uh, in the book. Who, uh, oh, my God. These drive guys. an ambulance, but they are apparently limited to uh Matson County. They can't go into Cherry County. They're not allowed to service anyone in uh the county because they know that they won't get paid by the county to do so. <laughs> so when Andy drunkenly uh has an accident where he falls off of his lawnmower driving around like he's out in fucking straight or something, they show up, but he is just barely over the county line. So they encourage him to crawl closer to them. Even though one of them. I can't has remember. a serious head injury. Yeah, I can't remember if it's Stanley or Mort who's like, this is ridiculous. Let's just, you turn your back and I'll go and I'll drag him over. Here. <laughs> but the one of them is just, you know, nope, we're not doing it. He does not want to get screwed over. So they don't end up helping this poor guy. They leave him on the road because he's so fucking injured. He can't make his way over across the county line. These guys also moonlight as an animal transport service. So instead of helping this possibly mortally wounded man, they go off to uh, pick up a cow or something like that, uh, a calf to transport to somebody's farm. But it's uh, it's a great sort of everyone in the town has this real cheapness to them, you know, this real uh, and, and, and set their ways like they're not going to like do anything. They're not going to go above and beyond in any way. And I think this is like the perfect picture of that. Not wanting to like cross a county line to help out someone who's in distress when it's your literally your job. It just kind of like really defines sort of the mentality of everybody who lives in red red bud and it's agonizing it's such an agonizing scene again it's really really funny but simultaneously agonizing that's to me one of the most memorable scenes in the book i guess because i'm also you know because <laughs> i'm on medicine now where if i get a head injury of any kind i'm supposed to go to the hospital immediately like my doctor said that i should consider driving with a helmet on right so all of the head injury stuff in this book is just like <clears throat> drives me insane with like discomfort like hearing about all of that stuff you know and it's not and it doesn't shy away from it it's very like directly written in a lot of ways uh a a very direct you know he doesn't use euphemisms he really explains when somebody hits their head or lands on their neck and the numbness they're feeling and all that sort of thing because of the poster of the movie i could have sworn this scene was in the movie i could have i would have sworn up and down that chevy chase gets drunk on the lawnmower and gets in an accident wouldn't have you or did you just know the movie too well because the poster shows him riding the lawnmower yeah i didn't i knew these characters weren't in the movie yeah i feel like i would have remembered them but it felt like just a, a perfect scene for the movie but again he never gets driven nuts in the movie in the same way he just he's always sort of 
you know, the descent into alcoholism is nowhere near as severe in the movie. Isn't it? Yeah. He's at like a four on the old tension scale there, Rube. <laughs> um, he doesn't really, you know, he, he doesn't really go bananas uh, in the movie, you know, and it's, and it's funny. We put together a character list for this. We, you put together a very comprehensive character list for this that I then looked over and said, boo, looks good. And there's just so many things looking at it right now that like we could have picked just like piss boot Jackson, man, Andy gambles with that cockfight, you know, um, Billy Cotton and his wife who punish their kids for doing badly by, um, bringing them to, the uh, local history museum because it's so fucking boring. Yes, they were almost my picks. I I love that one. You know, Virginia F- Bloomfield, the lady in the hospital obsessed with Lana Turner. There's just like such a list. There's just so many, many great freaking characters in this, you know, without even touching on when Andy takes the job as a local sports writer working for the uh, for the Red Bud Gazette, you know, in the in the uh, sports department. Uh, it's there's just so much to this book that's great and funny and unexpected and just, you know, completely, completely. I, I mean, I feel like it's coming across that I fucking loved reading this book, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's Did so you... much fun. Yeah. I mean, it's, it really is. It's hard to like that. When I said this is a different kind of book for us, I meant specifically like we could sit here all night just talking about all the funny fucking scenes, quoting all the funny lines from this book, because that's really the kind of joy that you get from it. Just kind of going through one at one chapter, another be like, Oh yeah, that was a great scene. And that was a terrific scene. And reviewing the movie again and kind of being like, it's interesting how they kind of, you know, took you know, did an amalgam of that scene in this one and like kind of how they had to sort of, how Bohm was sort of focused or forced rather to create like a more steady line between Andy and Elizabeth, you know, making it more about his failure to write the novel and her success selling this children's novel about squirrels, which in the movie he then passes off as his own just to placate his publisher, which turns out to be like the most scumbag thing ever. And that always really upset me too. In the movie, I was kind of glad, honestly, that that part didn't actually happen in the book. Yes. Yeah. Um, But in the book, it feels more insulting. The, The writer's block feels more deeply felt the throwing away his life to try and write a novel and simply not having the talent to do it feels much more deeply felt the little scene yeah, where he's getting and trying to get in touch with his favorite writer yeah. that feels much more desperate so when she dashes off a children's book that's mocking him it's it's so much more a gut punch in the book than in than in the movie the movie it just feels like another minor irritation yeah it's true i love to when he finally gets to the writer and tells him he has writer's block he gets that dammy line that's something like you need to write something to have writer's book. Yes. Yeah. Since he is more of a Clark Griswold type in the movie and, you know, definitely more of a romantic kind of uh, character. It's interesting. A line that comes up, I think twice in the book is a piece of cake is a lot harder to make than to eat, which, you know, kind of is interesting to think about in terms of the main characters, the farmers, where the idea is, you know, you can't just like come into paradise and like, you know, set up shop and then boom, your life is great. You know, like there's like effort that needs to happen. There are obstacles you need to kind of go over. And I kind of thought that was an interesting thing to think about in terms of people who live in the city who then think that moving out to the country is going to be this paradise that they can just sell into, that their cake is going to be made for them. Uh, There's a certain amount of uh, 
uh, privilege, you know, that, that, that Andy feels or entitlements, you know, when he goes out there that you kind of feel like, Oh, he, in, in the movie, he bone really plays up that he's like, he's getting what he deserves or like having this yeah. kind of, like sense of entitlement. Uh, whereas in the book, I feel like we already discussed, it's really like Cronley just being like, this is just a horrible place who everyone who moves here would probably die. Yeah. That it's something, it's almost like survival. I was going to pick something like for one of my pairings, I was like, should I pick the road, the Cormac McCarthy book <laughs> to go with it? The, there's really a certain, like, you know, is, is beyond Thunderdome. It, it does have like an apocalyptic <laughs> survival aspect to it. You know, like, I, like I, I picked a slightly apocalyptic, just like a, parent. I just like what this book, you're counting shotgun shells and measuring how much diesel fuel you have. You know, it's that kind of a a scenario for it. Um, I wanted to just mention while I'm thinking about it, George Roy Hill directed Funny Farm. I noticed when I was looking at this, do you know who wrote Let It Ride? The script, I don't. Nancy Dowd, who wrote Slapshot really? for George Roy Hill. Yeah. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. And she's a really interesting writer as well. She mainly worked uncredited. Obviously, Slapshot is one of the great fucking scripts of all time. Yeah. But she also wrote Swing Shift for Demi. And that script is apparently phenomenal. The the Demi m- movie that got deeply re-edited and screwed up by Goldie Hawn, who had a final cut uh, and just went in and tore that movie up from the roots up, apparently. And The Fabulous Stains, she also wrote. But I thought, oh, that's weird that there's like George Roy Hill connections to two of these. And Slapshot might even be a, a better better pairing than Bad News Bears in some ways. Um, <laughs> more violent, more overtly comedic, still very real feeling. This book feels very real, I'd say, about it. It doesn't feel like a, a cartoon, I would say, that there's something about it that feels very well observed, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's just stuff like the money issues you brought up, you know, I think made grounded in a way that's very realistic. And, yeah. and and the brutal brutal injuries everyone suffers as well. And just like a realism about what small town people are like, normally when writers write about small town stuff, the caricature is wrong. There's an insultingness. It's what you're uh what you're saying of like, oh, you know, it's like um the people when they want to satirize the difficulties and badness of small town life, there's like a contempt and unhaughtiness. It's written by people who are just eating the cake who haven't made it. This book feels like it's written by somebody who's there in Oklahoma making the cake. You know, it has that yeah. feel to it. Whatever sort of satirization and critique it has of small town life, it feels like it's earned it. It feels like it's coming to it with an honesty and even a, a delight in the misery of it. That's not contemptuous. That's not haughty. That's not looking down on it. That's not look at these hillbilly yokels. We're so much better than them. It doesn't have that feeling at all. It it has a like uh Life is really hard out here, and these two, the farmers, are not equipped to deal with how hard things are going to be, rather than, you know, look at all these idiots out here who don't know how to run their their place right, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It also has a very realistic take on, you know, marriage and divorce, you know, what, like, it causes a marriage to fall apart. Again, in yeah. the movie, they have the him stealing her book as a way of, like, that's, like, the final straw, and that's what makes her want to leave him. But in this one, it's just a slow kind of you know, rot, like a slow dissolve, you know, into like their marriage falling apart. He has this just brutal line in the middle of the book as they're, as she's decided to leave him. It says, 
Andy Farmer guessed it was better to find out now instead of later that somebody was only with you as long as life was wonderful. It yeah. was hard to it was hard to believe you could make love to somebody around two thousand times and not have it mean a goddamn thing though. It's yeah. Like, oh my God! You think Cronley got divorced? <laughs> yeah. You think? Did you not notice the uh, the intro to the book? The the, intro? Uh, the the dedication on the book. Oh right, right, right. Yeah, I'd forgotten all about it. Once there was a writer who dedicated a book to a spouse. It was a real sweet dedication. Unfortunately, the spouse divorced the writer shortly before the book hit the stands. It's no wonder you see a lot of books dedicated to unexplained initials. What the heck? This is for Connie. Yeah. Ouch. And it's amazing because I looked him up just to confirm that he had, in fact, been divorced. And Connie yeah. wrote uh, a piece for the Tulsa World, the paper that he wrote for it yeah. right after he died. And it is heartbreaking. It's a heartbreaking tribute to him where it turns out that they were still very good friends after their divorce. She knew him for 50 years, you know, like they, he still helped her in her life and like her jobs and things like that. It was always very like supportive of her. And so her tribute to him kind of immediately is like, this isn't going to be like a saccharine kind of uh, memoriam memoriam because he would have hated that. But like, I like, it's basically like, I feel so bad right now that somebody who I love so much and was a part of my life is gone. And I literally can't understand how I could continue to live without him. And she just kind of talks about grief more than anything. So it's kind of interesting that like, even though he seems to have this very cynical approach to like marriage, he remained friends with his ex-wife and like was so close that she wrote this really beautiful tribute to him after he died. Yeah. Well, that's my sense of marriage in the book too, is just you, when she wants to leave, you're not like, oh, anybody is being unreasonable. You're like, of course she wants to leave. Of course this is miserable. You know, of course it's a bad idea to be there. But of course he doesn't have any options when he's like, what, go live in your mother's condo? Like we invested all of our money in this. We can't get out of here. That's what the the end sequence of the book is about is like, we we can't financially get out of here. We are trapped here financially, you know? And I think that that's one of the things that in real marriages too, is one person can just go, but you can't actually go together. Like it has to break up for somebody to escape. And the other person is sort of left with whatever the heavy fucked up thing is, you know, the, the thing that's, that's bringing them down. They're just left with it, you know, and sort yeah. of breaking it up is the only way to make any kind of change. Another great line. Andy Farmer found it laughable that his wife's best shot was a long range missile fired from a goddamn condo in Hackensack while he was engaged in hand to hand combat here in the trenches. Yes. <laughs> he decides to stay there and, and fight a losing battle, you know, when she's trying to escape. Yeah. But even when they decide to leave, they can't, you know, I think mm -hmm. it's very, I think it's very telling. And I think you're right that it's, it's a lot wiser about the breakup of a marriage than a lot of things. I wouldn't know anything about that. Having had a very happy marriage that ended mysteriously under, under circumstances as being incredibly happy in it. <laughs> um, what is, uh, shall we move on to our dessert picks for this? Yeah, absolutely. Do we have any last things to say about the movie? It was kind of interesting to revisit it uh, again. I was worried that I just, it was all nostalgia for me because yeah. I saw this movie in 1988, which was a huge, huge year for me. That was the year that in March, uh, we all went to see 
the re-release of Fox and the Hound. And I said, I don't want to go fucking see this. Like I said to my mom, can I go see a movie by myself, pick my own movie? And she let me and I saw Beetlejuice instead. And like from that point on, it was just like, I'm going to like forge my own movie path here. You know, like I'm going to go and pursue artwork that I actually am interested in, not just like that's obligatory because that's just happens to be what's out and what's being fed to us. Like that was huge for me. So for this to come out that summer was, you know, I thought like, okay, I'm just remembering that that particular year as being like a really great uh, formative year for me, but I really like this movie. It's again, it's so weird that it's, so much so uh has great fidelity to the book but is just a completely different thing boehm actually has a quote where he says that george roy hill wanted to do a much classier version than i ever imagined it to be he said i imagined it to be a little cruder more lowbrow humor rougher and more like the movies chevy was doing at the time but george was a classy guy and he wasn't going to do that he does what he does he made the movie classy and i think a lot of chevy's fans were let down because it wasn't as raucous and vulgar as they might have expected then certainly the vulgarness and the vulga- uh, raucousness of the book is definitely somewhat sacrificed in the film, but I think it still comes off pretty well. And Chevy Chase himself has called it the best of his movies that he made. So I, he was definitely proud of it. I can see him liking that, that movie. That makes a lot of sense to me. I was mm-hmm. going to say you talking about this movie uh, or being part of that summer and forging your own movie path, I was thinking about it. And when you were talking about it, this is maybe the first summer that I can, or year of movies that I can remember the movies I saw in the theater vividly. I can remember which theater I saw them in. I can remember everything about the movies. Because when you talk about seeing it, I was like, oh yeah, right around in my head, I was like, right around the same time I saw this, I saw Crocodile Dundee 2. Is that true that that came out in 88, right? When this movie came out? Mm -hmm. And so I went and looked it up and it was like, oh yeah, I remember Beetlejuice. You know, I remember that movie so vividly, but forgotten movies like Great Outdoors. I remember everything about Great Outdoors. Big Business, Scrooge. These are movies that I remember completely, completely big, you know, which it opened opposite and sort of got knocked off. Uh, knocked off course by Chevy Chase had famously turned down doing big because he he didn't he didn't think it was going to be good, but I just remember really vividly the movies I saw this year really really vividly. Um, although I did not remember much from Funny Farm, I remembered seeing it in the theater very very vividly. I remembered the experience of going to it very very vividly so that's strange i guess it is a formative year for movies although a lot of the movies i just listed are not actually great so i don't (laughs) so i don't think of it as like that's the year i went and saw these movies although definitely like what else is 88 willow was a movie that was huge for me when i was a kid you know um that's that's sort of fascinating that's sort of fascinating short circuit too that's that's (laughs) the same time because i saw it at the same theater i saw funny farm at yeah, that would have been my first experience with Michael McKean, I think, was that movie. Also, you know what's funny? This is a ridiculous anecdote. I'm just telling you now. Saw Short Circuit 2. We had a babysitter, my sister and I and our friend Ross Larson, his older sister, actually, like three weeks later, right? And she was like, I'm going to take you guys to a movie. There's a new Short Circuit. And I was like, we already saw it. And she's like, no, 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 no. There's a new short circuit. And I was like, really? She's like, yes, there's a new short circuit. And I was like, 
we just saw a new short circuit and she's like yes there's a new one and i was like sequels come out that fast short circuit three is out already there's a third short circuit movie already just like two weeks ago i saw short circuit are you are you sure and i went to see short circuit two a second time fully convinced i was going to see short circuit three and as soon as it started i was like of course there's not a fucking short circuit three this is the last (laughs) time i ever let an adult talk me out of anything that's funny. That same year, I had a babysitter who didn't know what to do with this during the day. So she just took us to see The Land Before Time. I saw that movie seven times in the theater in Whoa. 1988 because this babysitter would just keep taking us to it, dumping us off and then going and doing God knows what and coming and collecting us when it was over again. God, there's so many. I just pulled up the like movies that came out and there's so many movies that year that I know inside and out. It's really weird. But that like no one thinks about like Johnny Be Good. She's having a baby. These are all movies that like imprinted license to drive. That is a John Cribbs fucking classic there as well. Funny Farm and License to Drive might be the most John Cribbs double feature <laughs> imaginable. Too so funny. when you watched it again, was it what what was it? Did you feel good? Was it nostalgia? Did you like it? It did. It wasn't nostalgic because there was enough I didn't remember about it that I enjoyed for the first time. Uh, scenes where I was like, oh, I didn't think that this scene from the book made it into the movie, but it did. It's interesting to see it. And again, to kind of have the book as a reference for scenes like the one in the antique store, where it's like, that's really interesting how that's changed for the movie, you know, how they had to like, uh, and again, I was talking to Kevin Marr about it a little bit earlier, that there's just this externalization you need to have for the characters in a movie that you can't, uh, that, that or, or that you that uh, has to exist in a movie that doesn't necessarily have to exist in a book. Uh, jokes change because of that, you know, like basic approaches, angles to scenes are the same scene, but it's completely different. So I appreciated that. And I think it's a fun movie. Um, I really like uh, Madeline Smith as Elizabeth. I think she's really, really good, like really understands that character. Uh, she has kind of a weird career where she, the only other movie I think I've seen her in is the caller with Malcolm McDowell which uh, Kevin pointed out is funny because she's kind of like a, um, a, a B grade. Uh, what's her name? Steenburgen, Mary Steenburgen, who was married to Malcolm. McDonald. Whoa, really? So that's kind of funny, but uh, yeah, so I definitely appreciated uh, seeing the movie and it's a, it's a secret Christmas movie, isn't it, Chris? The, the big, uh, <laughs> the big fake out at the end of the perspective buyers takes place at Christmas time, and there and the and the car, the car sort of gently hitting the Christmas tree reminded me of Decalogue Three, um, another secret Christmas movie. You know, I was thinking Julie Haggerty this whole time. I was thinking she would have been perfect in that role, yeah. um, but uh, I Robert Altman had directed it to be Julie Haggerty. For sure. <laughs> um. Albert Brooks and Julie Haggerty actually would have been pretty good for the movie. Yeah, that would have been. I could see that. Um, I was surprised by how much I like it. I'm a huge George Roy Hill fan. I don't know if that if that makes sense <laughs> to people, but I really love Slapshot's one of my all time favorite movies. I love Big The Sting, obviously. I I it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I will go to bat for the ones that aren't that aren't good. Um. Butch Cassidy and the and the Sundance Kid is obviously a great movie. I watched that this last summer, maybe the summer before. Um, Slaughterhouse Five. I I've, I think he's a really interesting director. He's somebody I like a lot. And I'm on 
his wavelength. I think if you were going to compare this movie to anything, it's probably world according to Garp, right? It has that same sort of like mm. low wattage something to it from a book that's very high wattage. It makes a very sort of like almost flatliningly pleasant experience out of something that's a super high, high intensity book. Um, I was trying to remember, doesn't World, according to Garp, have a crazy truck driver who almost runs him down at one point? Uh, funny farm? Yes, right? Something like that. I have not seen it or read it in years, so it might be a fuzzy memory. He almost gets, it has brutal car stuff in it. Yeah. Um, yeah, but it's, you know, it's, I like George Roy Hill, so I was... I was definitely on this movie's wavelength, but it's the same kind of thing where it's like praising this movie can only harm it. Like it's a very, it's a very, very slight movie. If you go in saying, I'm going to see something pleasant, you know what it reminds me of is just like when you put Turner classic movies on and there's some movie from 1938 on that you've never heard of or 1948 and you enjoy it and that's it. And there's not much to it. It's like, Maybe it's got Cary Grant in it and you've never heard of it before this moment. You know, maybe it's, you know, some forgotten actor in a in a comedy or romance. And it, it and you go, oh, I like that. That was a, a pleasant way to spend that time. This movie has that feel to it. It feels like a, a throwback in that way, in some way. Quick Change has that same feel. And I would imagine, although I haven't seen it, Let It Ride is kind of similar. Did you have that experience with Let It Ride as well? Or Let It Ride is m- much more shrill in 80s mm, than the yeah. other two. Let It Ride, I would say, comes the closest to the feeling of the book. Let It Ride is pushing it towards 11 as much as it can. Let It Ride is really pushing it the way the book is. I haven't read that book, obviously. I would say, I guess it's pushing it the way Funny Farm pushes it. You know, um, but it's it's trying to go to 11 a lot of the time and it's trying to be really funny and it's trying to be really outlandish and it's trying to go big. And it's interesting. It's definitely worth a movie worth seeing. All three of them are like, especially if you take them as a as a trilogy, like that's a good cult trilogy. You know, like I get it now, especially after reading the book and sort of placing them all together. Um and I, it's sort of like a an ascending scale where Funny Farm is very quiet, Quick Change is a little louder, and then Let It Ride is sort of trying to be very loud, you know? Yeah, so. I think, but I think they're perfect for what you were saying about that time, that particular time in movies where it's like, oh yeah, I know that that, that exists. I don't remember specifically what happens, <laughs> in it, but I, I definitely know that it exists for sure. Uh, what the final thing I just like to say about this book is that like, this might seem obvious, but like, it's something, not nothing. And, Mm -hmm. and I was thinking about when reading this is like, it reminds me of when people used to be writers and storytellers when books were written by writers and storytellers and part of it's because it's about a writer but like you wrote a book because you were a writer and a storyteller not because you were a product of a university system where you went to a creative writing programming when we talked about generation loss i felt like just wanting to vomit on that book it's got that style that's taught in schools that's like machine pressed nothing that I despise. And reading this book, it feels like Jay Conley wrote books because he's meant to be a writer. 
that's why he wrote it. You know, he's a natural storyteller and he can tell whatever story he wants, whatever way he wants to, because he's got the talent to do it. And the way it's written, who cares about discussing the style? Who cares about discussing the structure, you know, on a certain level is just is just a story well told. And I think it's I think it's telling that he majored in English not creative writing at a huge public university. He went to University of Oklahoma. I think that that all says something about what the publishing industry used to be, that it's absolutely not anymore and what books don't get written anymore. Um, in the 2006 interview I was listening to, he says, uh, we're in the throes of a global creative crisis. And he lists everything. He's like books, ballet, TV, you know, and he really seems concerned about where things are going, that sort of the corporatization uh, of art is happening hand in hand with the academicification of it, that these things are sort of everything is just, you know, uh, a, a sequel, blah, blah, blah. I know the the MCU gets blamed for a lot of stuff, but I was like, what was happening in 2006 when he gave this interview? And the top 10 movies were a Pirates of the Caribbean, Caribbean sequel, Da Vinci Code, Ice Age sequel, James Bond sequel, Night at the Museum, Cars, X-Men sequel, Mission Impossible sequel, Superman sequel, and Happy Feet, right? So it's like, you really look at it and it's like, you know, oh, what happened to the blockbuster in the past 10 years? It's like, it was already happening before, you know, Iron Man even comes out. Like, whatever's happening is... You know, that stuff might be representative of it. But I think that there's this this corporatization and academicification of the arts that go hand in hand. The hiring of people who went to high class graduate schools to run these things, it just gets seamlessly incorporated. Things are written well and maybe written better than at any time in history. You know, I think there's a competency to it that you're not producing Big Business or Crocodile Dundee 2 or Great Outdoors. You're producing stuff that's objectively better, but it's not done by writers and storytellers in a very fundamental way. And that's what I think about when I read this book is that he's a writer. This book is written because Jay Conley's a writer and a storyteller. And that's the reason it exists in a very fundamental way. It can't be nothing when you have 50 or 60 characters and each one of them is memorable, you know, each one is yeah. like their own little thing, whether they're, you know, uh, a woman who accidentally eats a craft Swiss cheese wrapper <laughs> or the bar owners who put up a sign that says no crying, <laughs> crying, uh, <laughs> a huge woman with arms the size of loaves of bread. You know, I mean, <laughs> this, this is just a great, you know, world that he creates. I mean, it's just an organic world and it's each character is absurd but very realistic at the same time and it's just you live in this book when you go he, through it you know? he writes because he's meant to write not because he was taught how to write and read some spreadsheets about what sells and all of that he writes because yeah. he's a writer and i think that that's you can actually see that being lost i think clearly because i think he's not an influence on anything modern I don't think there's anything modern that comes out of this. Same feeling you get with Charles Portis, where you don't feel like, oh, a bunch of people read this and are trying to do this. You get a little bit of that of, with Portis because of who he influenced, you know, and and what, and if, you know, people like Elmore Leonard, who are huge pop cultural influences, you know, but with Cronley, because this is a thing that like is prehistoric when you dig it up and you look at it, you really do go, Oh, the culture's completely different now. Yeah. Yeah. You don't read books like this anymore. You don't see movies like this anymore. 
Um, what are your uh, dessert pick? What is your dessert pick for this? Well, honestly, now I'm tempted to change it to Lost in America now that you made me think about <laughs> Brooks and Julia Haggerty. That would actually be a pretty good uh, double feature. Um, but what I picked was because the the last chapter of the book, after uh, they failed to sell the house and they're kind of resigned to just live there, what they've kind of compromised with is that uh, they have rented it out to a horror movie to film their scene there, right? Their, uh, their, their slasher movie scene. And so it kind of ends on the horror movie. So I thought it was appropriate to pick a horror movie, actually, to go with this, because the opening uh, sequences of them and the horrible ordeals they're going with, uh, where they're being attacked by snakes and uh, everything, just <laughs> everything around them seems to be going wrong. And the, the the chapter, the great chapter with the storm, you know, it just like, seems like <laughs> I know where you're going against them. So I thought I would pick uh, Colin Eagleston's Long Weekend. <laughs> I knew it. Written by the great Everett DeRoche, who said of the movie, my premise was that Mother Earth has her own autoimmune system. So when humans start behaving like cancer cells, she attacks. Their crime was against nature and nature found them guilty was the tagline uh, because it's a, a film about uh, Peter and Marcia and their dog Cricket who go on a weekend camping trip on the Australian coast and just start fucking with everything, you know, being being humans, like just just corrupting the environment with their humanness, basically, just their modern living. And um, so, of course, Andy being having a snake flying at his head, Elizabeth being assaulted by a praying mantis. Reminds me a lot of the eagles and possum and most effectively a, a dead dugong that still seems to be slowly moving up the beach <laughs> in a long, long weekend. These This couple who are assaulted by nature, unable to deal with the elements and constantly at each other's throats, making the situation worse is kind of a similar vibe to the opening of this book. That's such a great pairing. That's so beautiful. <laughs> um, yeah, there there is the same sense of just like this environment it, just being alive in this world is going to be very difficult. And there's yes. no reason why everything's going against you, except that like, it's possible for things to go against you. I love the one moment I love in this book is when the ducks finally leave, when they watch the their <laughs> pond ducks just walk away, cross the street and leave. And they don't come back. Oh, what's that great line? He shouts at them. You're going north, you idiots. <laughs> Towards you're heading into winter. You're heading into winter. That's right. It's a great line. It's I'm sad that they don't come back. I think the movie affected me that much that like, oh, the ducks don't come back. It's like, <laughs> Gigi, the cat's not going to talk anymore in Kiki's delivery service. You know, sad. <laughs> um, that's a very good pairing. My dessert pairing. You know, I'm surprised that he, this name hasn't come up at all talking about this because he was a columnist who turned into uh, whose film was turned into a movie, which is Gene Shepard. Right. Um, there's something about this. I was thinking about picking Bob Clark's Christmas story to pair with it. Bob Clark is another director that I feel like could have handled this book in an interesting oh, way yeah, that, absolutely. and that he's a director that's more interesting than he gets credit for. He did Christmas story, obviously the original black Christmas. So, uh, he also did Porky's. So he invented like the teen sex comedy genre and the slasher genre, what they would be in the eighties. He sort of invented both of them, which is really a credit. He's and, he's and he's playing in this pond at that time too. He's doing like loose cannons and stuff like that with Dan Aykroyd. Yeah. He's doing that kind of thing. Um, there's something about, about 
Gene Shepard's writing. I, I was thinking, no, I want to do a columnist instead. Gene Shepard's writing has a similar sort of like mix of like humor and like darkness to it, you know, yeah. that that it doesn't shy away from like the grimmer aspects of life, even as it's doing sort of like charming tales about family and the holidays, you know, and, and life in the country or in suburbs, you know, it, it still gets very dark and sometimes nasty. I remember when I was a kid, something about the Christmas story movie really bothered my mom. It was one of the few movies I wasn't allowed to watch, right. That I was banned from watching Christmas story. And when I finally sold it, saw it when I was older, I was like, Oh, I kind of get that. This is like a, a cynical mean-spirited movie in some ways like this is not like a fun movie um the first time i ever watched it i watched it at a friend's house and they had it taped and they'd written on the side of the tape the boy and the bb gun so for like six years i thought the name <laughs> of a christmas story was the boy and the bb gun um so my pick is a christmas story story no i'm just kidding my pick is a christmas tale tale Desplechen's new movie um <laughs> no i decided i was thinking there's got to be like another columnist and i was thinking i'm going to pick louis grizzard are you familiar with louis grizzard no, he was he was also a columnist and a sports writer he was from georgia he wrote for uh, the atlanta constitution journal i believe but he was a columnist who did kind of like funny columns about idiosyncratic idiosyncratic southerners and the book i'm picking uh of his for people to read is if i ever get back to georgia i'm going to nail my feet to the ground which is sort of an inverse of funny farm it's about his time as a newspaper writer in chicago and hating going from the south to the big city in chicago and not being able to get out of of there and go back um, a lot of his work are just collections of his columns, which are humor columns that I'm sure a lot of the stuff has as a Southern humorist um, in the and the 70s and 80s. I'm sure, you know, don't sit under the grits tree with anyone else. But me hasn't aged super well. I'm sure there's if I went back and read them, I'd be like, yeah, this guy doesn't like the gays very much. You know, that kind of thing, you know, but um, but it's that same. I, you know, I was just thinking about like. It's the same. <laughs> I really loved his shit when I was a kid. And I remember in sixth or seventh grade having a teacher tell me that I couldn't do any of his books for book reports anymore, that I had to pick somebody else to write about because I had done like four <laughs> of his books in a row. Wow. Uh, somebody other than Louis Grizzard. I remember the last one I I, I wrote about was uh, I took a licking and keep kept on ticking, which was his time, his book about his heart attack and nearly dying from a heart attack. He'd eventually shortly after that book die from a heart attack. But Louis Grizzard is fun and funny and um, I think a little bit more sweet natured and gentle than Cronley. But if I ever get back to Georgia is a good book to read sort of as like an exact inverse and sort of flip side. And I think puts you in the, uh, it puts you in the mindset of the townsfolk of Redbud. You know, I think it's sort of like the book written from their perspective in some ways. Huh. Well, that's great. I don't know them at all. I'm looking forward to reading this book now. I, you know, it's, it's very, it's like newspaper humorist stuff, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that, that Cronley comes out of that same tradition of like, just a job that doesn't fucking exist anymore. Like newspaper humorist is just explaining to people that there were like guys who each week wrote a column and it was about like the difference between naked and naked, 
You know what I mean? Like yeah. N-A-K-E-D and <laughs> N-E-K-K-I-D, right? Like just like that that did that sort of thing. The tradition Joe Bob Briggs comes out of, you know, that 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 sort of okay. southern humorist Mark uh Buchwald era. Mark Twain, you know, that yeah. kind of just being funny in the newspaper, telling real life stories that are embellished a bit to humorous effect you know, that aren't necessarily moralistic or don't serve a purpose beyond being funny, interesting stories about funny, interesting people that just doesn't exist anymore. That's just like not a profession that fucking exists now that every new media writer lives in Brooklyn and doesn't know anything about real life, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I guess it's sort of the ring larder junior sort of thing too, right? Where it's like mash has that football scene and has like sort of similar. <laughs> yeah. Music identity it's funny to think about that because when you think about the films that come from this and i always think about slapshot as a movie that should have been made by robert altman in a way it's almost <laughs> like the most robert altman of non-robert altman movies you know <laughs> it's it's robert altman except extremely funny which robert altman yeah. always had a problem with but all of these guys kind of like uh circling around this this particular kind of comedy around the time is is very much in the tradition of the newspaper comedy that you're talking about yeah for sure for sure. It's, um, it's just a different thing that doesn't, doesn't exist anymore. Do you have any, um, now, now people are going to go read Lewis Grizzard and be like, you told me to read Dave Barry columns, you fucking asshole. <laughs> kind of what I'm doing. Um, did you have anything else you wanted to say about the book before we wrap it on up? I, I love you picked this. This was total blind spot for me. Blind side. I had no idea who this was. I didn't know a fucking thing about it. And I loved it. I had so much fun with this book. I'm going to read whatever else of his I can. Yeah, there are very few things that like I would uh, throw Tarantino a compliment. But he, you know, he did an episode of Pure Cinema podcast where they talked about great last movies. And I was reminded that, you know, this is George Roy Hill's last film and Tarantino is actually a fan of it. And there are very few films that he recommends that I'm like, Ooh, that's a, that's, that's great. Or that's a movie I like a lot. Yeah. That so, sounds good. Yeah. Right. But so it was weird to think like, Oh, I, I like that movie and it's got me thinking about it. And that's what kind of led me to, to look up Cromley and like find out what the whole deal with him was. So uh, if anything, I would just vent my frustration that his earlier works are so hard to find because I love sports books, especially. I love reading books, uh, fictional sports books. So I'd love to read his earlier um, uh, football and his baseball books and see, you know, kind of the comedic fictional world that uh, a sports writer would create, you know, for these uh, these things. And these books not only are not adapted into films, but they're all out of print. And, you know, it's going to be tough to to find them unless I'm willing to read them off a screen, which I usually don't, don't enjoy doing. Yeah. Well, John, before we go... Any uh, pigskin picks for the upcoming weekend? Thoughts on the Michigan-Purdue game? <laughs> What's the great scalping line, scalper line? <laughs> uh, what is it? Let me find it. Uh, I don't think anybody can support himself very long with the ticket scalping revenue from this one. <laughs> uh, taking a dig at his alma mater, Oklahoma, in the Kansas-Oklahoma <laughs> game. That's great. It's great to great to discover like a new voice that's exciting, you know. Yeah. And I and I'll say that about the interviews with him. He just seem, he seems like a guy. He just seems like a, a a real guy, which is um which is which is likable, which is commendable, which is enjoyable, you know. Yeah. And again, feels feels rare. Uh it just feels rare in the modern world. Feels like everybody's 
performing something. When I encounter new writers, it feels like everybody's putting up a false front and everybody's trying to be something uh, they're not. Or maybe they're just coming from a background in life that's completely empty and have come out of a system that that produces sort of shallow non-humans with non-perspectives on their non-writing. If I ever do end up back in Oklahoma, I'm definitely looking up the old roadside place we used to eat at, Mears, and, and find out if uh, lamb fries are on the menu or not. Don't, don't go for the record, John. Don't do it! <laughs> I can break it. I know I can. <laughs> <laughs>